There is a lot of pushback against deep time in regard to the age of the earth. And what do the rocks, what do the rocks say? Jesus said the rocks would cry out. So we're going to talk to Dr. Tim Clary from the Institute for Creation Research on this very episode. And we're going to find out what the rocks actually say. I want to introduce to you my friend and a scientist at the Institute for Creation Research. This is Dr. Tim Clary. Tim, do you want to say hello to everyone? Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yeah, so glad to have you on the show, my friend, and uh, God bless you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe about your your degree? I know you've got a degree in geology, engineering, but you work as a geologist for the Institute for Creation Research. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I don't have an engineering degree. It's, it's all in geology. I've got, oh, okay, uh, okay, okay. All my degrees are in geology. Well, one of them has a math minor, so I do, I do. Oh, okay. But I've had a quite an, a quite a, a oh. load of experiences through my career, which I see now God's hand in bringing me through these things. And in spite of me, in spite of being a sinner, uh, God still can use me. And that's what I really am excited about here. My years that I've been at ICR about 10 years now. It's it's really exciting because it's I really do get to show people that God's word is true by showing them that the rock data really does show a global flood. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know a lot of people think that the Bible is in contradiction to science or faith in in is in contradiction to science that they're two opposing things, but I think that's far from the case, right? That's correct. Yeah, science really confirms the Bible. Yeah. And that's what we see. When you when you get this uh, ideas out of your head pushed by the conventional scientific community of evolution and deep time, yeah. you look back at what the Bible says and you look at the rocks like I'm doing, you really see that it's a perfect match. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, well, I've actually got your book here with me uh, in studio today. This is called uh, Carved in Stone. I don't know if you want to take a second to tell everybody about a little bit about your book and a little bit about uh, uh, it, ICR and what you're doing there. Okay, well, ICR is really, it was founded in, in 1970 by, by Henry Morris. And uh, in 1961, he kind of revitalized the uh, creation community with the, him and John Whitcomb right in the Genesis flood. And that's kind of what kept me going a little bit through my college career, because there wasn't a whole lot out there to read that explained the geology as I was studying geology. Uh, so, but ICR really is there still, we exist for over 50 years now to really, you know, one of the things is to edify the church and show people that, you know, God's word is true by my research that science really does confirm the Bible. And so that's that's kind of what ICR does. And, and it's just a pleasure that I get to work for ICR. I never thought I would. You know, that's, that was kind of part of God's plan to kind of bring me on board and, and do the research I'm doing, yeah. which we'll be talking about in this show. Amen. Well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know that you work with several other scientists there. Um, and, and how can people see... Uh, I, I guess some of either your other your products, your videos, things that with ICR they're on YouTube. I know because that's where I uh, see some of your some some of your stuff there. Well, they can go to just our website www.icr.org or just icr.org, and there's a slash store if you want to see the, the products we have. But there's a lot of our papers and articles we've written over the 50 years of our existence are all on there as well. If you do a, a query, you can find lots. I, I didn't. Talk about my book a little bit there. That was, I, I kiddingly refer to that as the second greatest book ever written, but it's really not. <laughs> it's really not. But it, but it turned out really well. I mean, uh, it was given an honorable mention. Uh, uh, I think uh, one of the Christian uh, magazines published it and said it was an honorable mention the year it came out in 2020, right when COVID 
lockdowns hit, that's when it came out. Okay, okay. But, but what it explains is is the patterns I was seeing by studying three continents. Yeah. And so I've studied studied North America, South America, and Africa, looked at the geology, you know, basin by basin, as you say in geology, uplift by uplift. Every major geological feature, I have a geologic column represented for that feature. And so those are published in either journals or articles. Uh, what a geologic column is is the rocks. If you drilled a well right here where you're sitting, all the way down to the crust. Okay. In most places, there's, there's some sedimentary rocks across most of the United States, and so we record at the latitude and longitude for that column, and then how many. And we use metric to confuse the general audiences. Yeah. But everything in, in science is metric, so we use how many meters of like limestone, sandstone, whatever, all the way down. Okay. We put that in our database. And that database, then, once you start looking at the whole country and the whole continent, uh, from continent to continent to continent, really shows a lot of consistencies. And that's what that book explains. That there really is strong evidence for a global flood. Even a atheist geologist professor who read it, uh, he reviewed the whole book, and he was a little, getting a little bit angry at the end because I pointed <laughs> everything towards Jesus. It's all about, you know, the, did, all this happened. Did you speak with him in person in person, or, or he was just and telling no, no, you about this after? He wrote me a big, long email, but he, he was actually pretty <laughs> complimentary about my data. He was, he said, I really like your data, Tim. I just don't like yeah. your interpretation. Just don't like you know, your the God. Data, <laughs> right? The data is, yeah, the data is real. I mean, it's yeah. the real rocks that are there. Yeah. But to my knowledge, no one has done a, a study like this ever. Yeah. Especially in the last 50 years, and there's so much more I wouldn't think so, over. yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons I was so excited to actually get to touch base with you and connect with you on the show here and expose my audience to you is because um, I, I think a lot of people don't realize they just take at face value what they're taught from the time they're two years old in public school system, that uh, evolution, millions of years, billions of years with the universe, 13.8 billion years or however old they say it is at this point. Uh, now, there's lots of different areas of science to address here, but today, obviously, we're just talking about geology. A lot of people don't realize that the rock layers that, that make up the fossil record, um, where, where we find all of the fossils, the dinosaur fossils, everything, all the way back to the beginning is all sedimentary rock layers. And, and so I think, I think that lends to the idea that they were laid down by water. Um, a lot of people don't realize evolutionists actually believe that the world was covered in six floods, not just one. So they think we're weird because we think that there was one giant flood that flooded everything and it produced the whole fossil record that we see. But, you know, I, it's kind of strange to me why we would have that kind of reputation when they believe in six floods. But that's why it's really cool to have, you know, somebody like you on the show. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about your, uh, maybe about your, either your degree or your, your uh, uh, academic institution you went to, your, your, your university uh, college that you went to, and, and maybe why you're so passionate about geology? Well, I, I grew up in Michigan, we used to hoe beans as kids and, you know, make a little extra money on the side way back when, when okay. they were paying us a dollar or two an hour. And uh, so we were, and we'd pick up fossils because the fossils were brought down by the glaciers in Michigan. So you could pick up these fossils. And my brothers and I used to kind of compete for who could find the best fossils as we were picking up little rocks in the fields. And so that kind of got me interested in, in geology and, and history and, and really geology is history in some ways. Yeah. It's just, it's more forensic history. You got to go back and say, here's what's there. How did this get there? And so that always piqued my interest. Along with geology, you got to take a lot of other sciences and things. And so it kind of merges a lot of the sciences like chemistry and physics and biology into one. So I ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree at, at Western Michigan University, which had a really good bachelor's program. And from there, I transferred to Wyoming, University of Wyoming, got a master's in geology. 
And I thought I'd be off on my career in oil and gas. I got a job with Chevron, worked with them, bounced around the country a little bit, got a chance to look at a lot of oil wells offshore and onshore, and really learn about the geology, really, of, of the United States uh, in that process, and a lot of the techniques that oil and gas geologists use, the seismic data and the oil well data. Yeah. And all the stuff I'm using now, you know, I just realized God had a plan all along. But ultimately, the oil price, oil, you know, the oil business goes up and down, so there were a bunch of layoffs, and about the third or fourth layoff in, they finally laid 60% of us off, so off I was. Uh, okay. Uh, and now on to God's years. mission. God had a God and, had a plan for you, like you said. God had a plan because I wasn't doing it. I was in this burning, you know, desire to go back and get a PhD. Yeah. But the money was too good. You know, the money they pay in oil and gas is the best of all geology jobs. Uh, <laughs> well, this one it's has the best good. benefits. The but best. It, you know, uh, you go up and down, and so yeah. you got to ride the cycles. So this this, off this I one went, has I the best retirement fund. Career that's, that's less <laughs> volatile. Okay. So I went into academia. So I'm back to. When Western Michigan, I had a month. There's the problem. I had a month between when I got laid off in July and when I had to start school for a little over a month. So Western Michigan, where I got my undergrad, said, we'll take you back. We just started a PhD program. And literally, they just started about a year earlier. And they had called me and said, hey, why don't you come? And so I'd already applied just to, you know, just in case. And sure enough, they took me in. And I got funding from the oil company that laid me off, plus the you know, university, to get my PhD. So three and a half years later, I Finished up my PhD, did a lot of research in Colorado, and and off I went to teach. And I taught at a small college in Michigan for about 17 years, did a okay. lot of dinosaur digs, took students out to Wyoming, did a lot of different things, learned to kind of dumb it down, wrote some lab books. And so I realized now all these things laid that path for what God had planned for me to do here at ICR. So I could, you know, hopefully that book that you're holding up there, the carbon stone, yeah, is, yeah. is dumbed down enough that it, most people can understand it. I know there's some technical terms in there. There's a lot of great I did, pictures. I did yeah, a lot of pictures and maps, <laughs> but I did try to put in some introductory chapters to kind of get you up to yeah. speed. I, well, I, I love it. And uh, like I said, great to connect with you. Yeah, basically, you're vetted. I mean, that's kind of like the what I wanted to do to show my audience. Like, you know, you obviously have your degrees in geology. You're passionate about geology. And you, you you know the field, so there are always people who interpret evidence differently. Um, there's a reason that I believe that the world was covered in a global flood, and that's that's what produced what we see. Of course, the next step after that is to look and say, oh, there's this book called the Bible that talks about that. So you know maybe we should take that book a little more seriously. I would love to see in our public school system someday. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, this is my prayer, Dr. Tim, is that someday we would mm-hmm. see, having having a teenager in the public school system now, I'd love to see creation science, at least taught alongside evolutionary theory. If, if we're going to be fair and balanced in our, you know, in our process, and you're obviously a logical, rational person, um, and, and you've got an education in this field as well. So a lot of people don't realize that. They don't realize like sedimentary rock and what that is, they just see these fossils in these layers of dirt and rock, and they think, oh, millions of years. And I think they just don't know how to respond to some atheist or some college professor who's telling them uh, otherwise. So um, could you tell us a little bit about catastrophic plate tectonics and sure. what that is and how we could reinterpret uh, basically the fossil record with this idea of catastrophic plate tectonics instead of millions of years. Okay. Well, 
you know, you look at the Earth today, and you, you see there's a lot of evidence for something like maybe a Pangea of kind of almost a universal continent. And, and so you study this in school, and people look at the continents, how they fit together, and it, it kind of makes sense. But yet no one's really been able to explain, you know, how that would fit in with the biblical flood. And so John Baumgartner, uh, kind of a world-renowned geophysicist, worked uh, started in the 1980s, started doing some research on subduction, which is the process of where ocean crust is actually pulled down into the Earth's mantle. We see that these ocean trenches all over the Pacific Ocean, which still creates earthquakes and tsunamis today uh, when this process happens. But during the flood, we believe it happened very, very quickly, that you, instead of moving just a few inches, like maybe this much per year, like they are now, they're moving several yards per second. And his modeling, he did uh, one of the, using the, one of the government supercomputers, he was working for a government research lab at the time, he did these models and showed that the plates would actually slide down. Once they reach a certain temperature, they would fall in almost like a weight in water. And they would run away. He called it runaway subduction. And that runaway subduction process then would open up these rifts, these cracks all over the earth, uh, which probably was during the flood. If you read Genesis 7, 11, it talks about the fountains of the great deep burst open. All these cracks opened up all over the earth at that point, And then the plates started to move. And and that process might have started a little bit slow, but then it picked up speed as it went along as it started this runaway subduction. So what it really, the bottom line is this. We believe that there's strong evidence, and there's even some more evidence I can talk about a little bit later, of this runaway subduction that took place. So you made a whole new ocean floor, a whole new ocean crust during the year of the flood. And that seems to, you know, scientifically, it's been validated by these models. We also see in the Earth really these, these subducted slabs that go way down. They're still cold. They still apparently are, are cold. They shouldn't be cold if they're deep in the earth all the way down to the core. And so Dr. John Baumgartner's point out that because we still see these cold slabs, they should look to the same density all the way down. You know, that is strong evidence that these really did move down there quickly just a few thousand years ago during the, during the global flood. And, and so, Secondly, we, we can also, one more, one more thing. <clears throat> we also find on like Kodiak Island, for example, I got a chance to go collect samples there. And you can see places where the rocks are about this thick of melt. Uh, to get that kind of melt, you have to have extraordinary amounts of movement real, real, real rapidly. And it's an old subduction zone that it was one of the active during the flood, but it's no longer active today. So we've got rock evidence, we've got geophysical evidence in the earth that these plates really did move fast, contrary to what you hear in school, contrary yeah. to what you're taught as fact. You know, they, they make it sound so factual when they teach these great ages and the slow movements of the plates. Yeah, they sure do. But today they are moving slow, but yeah. know, during the past they move very, very quickly. And yeah. there's, again, evidence to support that. So, so, so go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I'm just going to ask a follow-up question because I, I really want those who might be listening to this for the first time, and maybe they've just seen me post my little YouTube shorts about why we should teach creation science in public schools and just think I'm some kind of lunatic. Like, why is the... Uh, the idea of deep time. Now we're just talking about geology here in terms of what we see in the rocks, the rocks cry out. That would have been a great scripture for this, for this, for this podcast episode here. (laughs) The rocks will cry out. Uh, Why is, why is the idea of deep time absurd? Why can that not form what we see today? Because I mean, they believe in six floods and and, I mean, that that seems crazy to me. I don't, I don't know if another rational person would say that seems crazy to them. Could you answer that yeah, question? They, they believe in six floods, but they don't think it ever flooded everything because they don't see rocks covering everything. But, you know, it, there really is evidence that it did flood everything. One of those floods, the fifth one, I believe, flooded everything. 
and there's evidence of that up in Lake Canada. There's remnants of sediments in different places. So, you know, they do believe in six floods because they do see the evidence of water deposited sediments, you know, pretty much all over the world at six different times. But, but what I'm finding in, in that book, I describe it as a progressive flood, just like Genesis 7 says. We see a little bit flooding early, a little bit more flooding, a little bit more flooding. And the early flooding only involved what appears to be shallow seas. Yeah. We see almost all marine fossils first. And then you get to the point where all over the world at the same time, when the water levels got higher, and the reason the water got higher, it goes back to that catastrophic plate tectonics, the mechanism that I believe God used to, to bring on the flood. Uh, so the water ended up rising 150 days, as the Bible talks about. And we see that in the rocks. We see early flooding was just minimal. And we see more flooding later when you start reaching the land, which is at least by day 40 when the ark is floating, the Bible tells us. So by day 40, we're now flooding maybe the coastal areas. And suddenly all over the world, we see land animals show up in the fossils. We see coal seams show up in the fossils all at once. Yeah. Before that, there's almost none. And then you move up to the next level and you get to the dinosaurs with a little bit, maybe a little higher lowland areas, and they're all wiped out. And you yeah. go to the next level and you get the upland areas. You get the animals that lived at higher elevations, different plants. And so I really see the progression of the flood is also displayed in the fossils that we see. The order of the fossils is really the order of flooding of different ecological zones as the water went higher and higher. And that was all driven by the CPT, we call it, catastrophic plate tectonics. As you make more ocean crust, it pushes up the water from below. Yeah. And so the new crust is hot and buoyant, and it kind of pushes everything up like the bottom of your bathtub coming up. Right, right. So we see this flood that really in the maps that I'm showing in that book and and what I've done since then is really showing the the flood was real, and it was a progressive flood, and it and it really did. Like the Bible says it took 150 days. You know, God could have judged the earth and wiped everybody out instantly. Yeah. So and for some reason, He chose to you know to make this kind of a slow, yeah, yeah, painful, regretful flood for people that you know re- should have listened to Him when He said there's going to be a flood. So, and, so and they use the term. Oh, um, eight people get in the ark. Oh, go ahead. Uh, evolutionists use the term. They use the term tranquil flood is, is the term mm-hmm. that they use. So there were six of these tranquil floods. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to hone in on this point because I think it's important. Evolutionists believe the earth was flooded. Mm-hmm. They, they believe it was flooded six times. Mm-hmm. They don't like to use that terminology because then it makes them sound like creationists. It makes them sound like maybe the Bible was true. I don't mm-hmm. know. They think it's dangerous. Evolutionists mm-hmm. believe the earth was flooded. I mean, like, I want to do a series of videos on this. Evolutionists mm-hmm. believe the earth was flooded. They just think, they, they insist that it happened over millions of years and so on. But I want to hone in on this because I feel like it's an important point, and, and this demonstrates the absurdity. You know that if, if the, the floods are going to happen, something you know like a tsunami, I mean, this is what we're talking about here. That, that happens because there's an earthquake. We saw it. Um, what was it out in Japan? There was a big tsunami. There was the one in Indonesia. I don't remember what year it was, maybe, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. A lot of people died. That happens because there's an, yeah, there, there's an earthquake on the ocean floor, which causes the, this ripple effect, and it makes this huge wave go in on the land. So the idea of catastrophic plate tectonics is important because it shows us a mechanism for the flood, that there was this incredible, you know, the Bible explains it in terms of the the fountains of the great deep, but let's just forget about the Bible for a second. We see that the earth was flooded because there's sedimentary rock. The rocks Mm -hmm. cry out. There's sedimentary rock. Mm -hmm. There's dead things buried in there. Mm -hmm. 
evolutionists say that these rock layers were laid down tranquilly, but catastrophic plate tectonics says that in a very rapid amount of time, the mountains were formed, uh, uh, aquatic life uh, fossils were thrown all over the continents. Um, you see these different um, uh, uh, periods of the flood over a series of, you know, what it was, 150 days or something like that going on. So you see different material being brought in from different parts of the world. Um, is a is a tranquil flood even possible? Like it doesn't. It seems crazy. The idea of it seems crazy to me as a rational human being. It seems cra- what what is a, a tra- what is that? And how does it form well, the mountains? It can't, right? I mean, am I nuts? Well, well it's, it's kind of an oxymoron. And it's, you know, what flood even today? What local <laughs> flood is tranquil? I mean, <laughs> really, there isn't any. So, and you see in the fossils, the fossils, you can see how many of them are torn apart. I mean, many of the dinosaurs even are torn apart. You rarely find yeah. one that's you know, articulated, we call it, or kind of stuck together. And so you see the evidence even in the rocks show rapid flow. I mean, everything is just deposited really, really quickly, so fast we can preserve footprints, we can preserve eggs, we can preserve all these things. It might not have been real super high energy all the time because the waves kind of came in like tsunami waves do, and they back off a little bit, and they come in, they back off. But when they come in, they're, they're still moving 30 to 50 to 60 miles an hour, even across the land. In the deep ocean, tsunamis are going 500 miles an hour or more. But when they hit land, of course, their the friction it slows down. They build a big wall, and so you you got to think about tsunamis bigger than anything we've witnessed in written human history. Yeah, Probably was, it might have been 500 foot high, and there's evidence of that in some of these cross bedded sands. That the, these cross beds are so big they had to be created by 500 foot high waves. And most of the evolutionists say, "Oh, those are just you know dry arid sand dunes." Be it you're finding in those rocks we're finding minerals that come only from the ocean like dolomite ooids which only geologists would know what those are yeah when you tell somebody ooids are little balls of carbonate made out of dolomite which only form in the ocean even today the you know limestone ooids only form in the ocean today so they're finding these inside these supposedly dry arid sand dunes that makes no sense so it does appear that almost all the rock record with all these fossils was all deposited by water and even an evolutionist would say most of it was they do see the evidence of these floods. They just think they're separated by millions of years. What we're saying is there's no evidence of, of time in between. Most of these layers are flat, laid down like bricks. Okay. And so you really see waves coming in, waves going. There's some erosion, obviously, but you don't see the type of erosion you expect in millions of years. You don't see canyons forming at every level. Right, right. You see canyons at the top and, and that's, today, like that, Grand Canyon forming. That's another important point I want to focus on because uh, that when you look at the geologic column, you see nothing in between. It looks like a, it looks like stacked pancakes. That's the way I always describe it. You know, when I'm talking That's to people, like it looks it looks like a stack of pancakes. It doesn't look like something was there for millions or a billion years, and then it was recarved, and there was new things formed, and this and that. So you do have this mass, this major issue for right. for deep time first, where there's no mechanism for the world to flood. Where did the water come from? How did the water get up on the land? They they'll say that the the continents sank and the, there's, there's no, there's no, it's, it's almost like I want to say an evolutionist believes in magic because just on the geo, geological side of things, because like, how does that, that can't happen? That, that makes no sense. But then you well, also okay, have this yeah. issue of the pancake layers where there's no evidence of erosion in between. Like there would be 
if mm-hmm. it was millions of years. No, you see one thing down. And, and in all of those layers, right, I don't want to step on your toes here, but maybe you can elaborate on this. You see, you see fossils, uh, uh, you see species appear in the fossil mm-hmm. record fully formed. Mm-hmm. You don't see transitionary these transitionary mm-hmm. forms in abundance like you would see if evolution were true. So that's another way the rocks cry out is, mm-hmm. you know. But it's the sudden appearance of things. It's starting with the Cambrian explosion, which we yeah. believe was probably some of the earliest flood layers. All of a sudden you see almost every major form of animal life, every major phyla, as they yeah. say in biology, shows up suddenly with no ancestors below. They just fully formed, ready to go. And that's the, what you see throughout the fossil record. You know, Darwin thought we'd go back and find all these transitional fossils between this animal and this animal. And they've been looking for over 170 years now, 160 years. They found nothing. <laughs> they have found nothing except for maybe one or two things they hold up. Oh, this is. And yeah. generally, that's disputed by some other evolutionary geologists later. And so there's no undisputed transitional fossils, even even in amongst the evolutionary community. Yeah. And so it really does support sudden flooding, sudden flooding, sudden flooding. The evolutionists even believe the seafloor rose to push the water to make those six floods. So I think there are periods where magically <laughs> like the yeah, started to spread faster. So they believe the same mechanism. They just don't want to put it all together in a short amount of time to make a whole new seafloor. Right, rapidly. right. Uh, and so I they, think, but, but getting back to your point, the the evidence appears mm-hmm. to say that this mm-hmm. catastrophic plate tectonic. Because I was taught mm-hmm. plate tectonics. When, I remember it from sixth grade science class. Mm-hmm. Science class, Pangaea, you know, continental drift, mm-hmm. plate tectonics. I remember all that stuff, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand enough about it like I do today to understand. Oh, when you actually look at the fossil record and you look at the geology, mm-hmm. it seems like this is true. But it happened very. What we see today in terms of the the geography mm-hmm. of the world. Like it was formed very quickly, mm-hmm. and I think that's really the point I want people to walk away with is that. Well, and that's, that's, and that's what the see. point I made earlier about the seismic tomography they call it, which is the deep seismic imaging of the Earth. You can see those cold slabs go all the way down, and and yeah. those big cold slabs down sitting on top of the core, yeah. which secular science or evolutionary scientists cannot explain. They they tried to you know they kind of was like well, let's just sidestep that issue. They see these things, but yet to us that shows that the Casualty plate tectonics mechanism really is supported by science. Yeah. You really do see these slabs that went down there very, very quickly. So quickly they didn't have time to heat up. Right, right. Even today, thousands of years later, they're still, you know, they're, they're 60 miles thick, but they should have heated up if they really moved still down cold. slowly a few inches per year of millions of years. Yeah. But, now, um, so there, there's evidence to back it up. Tell, uh, you know, I, there's so many different forms of evidence you can use here, like the fact that fossilization in order for that to occur, there has to be rapid burial. Like, right. so, so that, that, that kind of lends to this idea too, that there was a catastrophic flood. You need a mechanism right. for that, like, but, and so on. But uh, you've, you've actually gone across all the continents now, and I've heard you talk about this. Mm-hmm. Explain a little bit about that. Like, cause you, you've had this opportunity to, um, j- just, just explain it rather than have me try to set it well, up for you. Well, the, the book kind of starts at Carbon Stone, but then since then I've done two more continents. I'm actually working on, my sixth continent, I'm working on Australia, right below my computer here, I've got a, a map, geologic map of Australia, and I'm going through, you know, bit by bit, and, and so I'm working my way to finish that up. But all the five continents I've done so far, and, I, and I've got a paper coming on this, it's going to be given at the International Conference on Creationism uh, this July in uh, at Cedarville University, uh, shows a progressive flood. All the continents do the same thing at about the same time. They all show minimal flooding early. 
Yeah. And they show a little more flooding, then it show more flooding, more flooding, and eventually you see they all kind of reach a peak at about the same time. And so how could every kind of do almost the same thing at the same time if it wasn't a global flood, a global effect going on? So to me, the, the globalization of this is, is so obvious. Yeah. And such yeah. strong evidence of a global flood that, you know, it can't be denied. And the evolutionary community, again, people that read my book and looked at my things, they're like, well, we love your data, Tim. They just, they just don't like my interpretation. They just, they just, they just want to put the millions of years in between when there's really, I mean, I go through many uh, things in the book and, and some of my talks to show that even clay is deposited rapidly by moving water. Yeah. And that's how it's slowly, it's supposed to slowly settle out of water, you know, really stagnant water. But they're showing that the, the clay rich rocks we see have layers to them. Okay. And to get those layers, you got to have moving water. That's what the flume experiments are showing. Yeah. And so the empirical evidence to show everything, even these supposed rocks that were deposited slowly, were actually deposited by moving water. You know, moving over like a foot or two per second. It makes sense to me. I mean, so, I mean, when you think about the idea of a global catastrophe flood, it's hard for us to understand. Admittedly, admittedly so. So when we're talking to the person yeah. on the street corner, and the Bible's been devalued, people don't believe in it as much today as they used to. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is, it's fantastical. It's like it's like mm-hmm. something you see in a Marvel movie. Is that really? Mm-hmm. Is that real? Because we we only see uniform processes mm-hmm. today. But right. but but when but my point is when you look at the geology and you look at the alternate explanations for how that geology got there. That's where mm-hmm. evolution and deep time fall apart. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't mm-hmm. look like it might seem fantastical. It does seem crazy to think there was, I'm sitting here in Youngstown, Ohio to think that waves mm-hmm. in water deposited this ground mm-hmm. that's beneath my feet here, deep in the continent. But yeah, thousands, catastrophically, thousands feet, sometimes tens of thousands of feet of sediment. It, but how, th- there's no other explanation. You go sit at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you look up, and that's that's a lot mm-hmm. of material mm-hmm. there. It did it. You know, it didn't just magically come up, get there. It wasn't mm-hmm. it, that. That's a lot of material. That's all sedimentary rock. All those pancake layers. Mm-hmm. All sedimentary well, rock. And, but if you push the seafloor up, Andrew Snelling over at AIG, my my colleague, and you know in geology, he did some work and he showed that you move the seafloor up, you're going to push about at least a mile of water onto the continents. Wow. And so if the continents weren't as deep, you know, or, or if the continents didn't have as big mountains, which we don't think the mountains formed until late in the flood as, as the water was receding. Right. Most of these mountains, you know, do contain fossils that were deposited earlier in the flood, like the Himalayas and, and all that stuff. Uh, you could easily flood the land. And then John Bumgarner's model recently showing these tsunami waves coming in so fast that you could build standing waves of water on the continents as well. So you can easily get 10, 20,000 feet of sediment building up across the many of these areas. To me, it's, you know, the people of Noah's day, you know, Noah was preaching there's going to be a global flood. God told him there's going to be a global <laughs> flood. He's building this ark. They had no idea even probably what a local flood was. Right, right. They didn't have that. And today people ask me, well, Tim, where's the evidence for the flood? I'm like, just look down. <laughs> Most people are standing the same on, as Noah's know, day. It's the same thousands thing. of feet of sediment filled with fossils. Yeah. And, and then we know what a local flood looks like. We just have to kind of right, you know, right. dump that up. But it is difficult to do, to go to a global scale, to imagine the yeah. way is 500 foot high instead of 50 foot high. Yeah. Uh, the scale of things, we, we tend to make the flood small. Right. Just like I think in our minds we make God small because we're, you know, finite beings. Yeah. And, it, and it's difficult. But the beauty of it all is, you know, that was a judgment. Yeah. Wicked. But the beauty of it is that God, you know, through his Bible, which you know, I've heard people refer to, and I agree. It's a love story. God shows how, even though 
you know, sin was brought in by Adam and Eve. Sin and and it got so wicked within 1600 years, he had to kind of start over uh, with just eight people that were found to be righteous. Uh, that's how wicked the world was. Everybody else was, you know, yeah, judged to be to, to go through this uh, global flood and ultimately death by day 150 of the flood, including most of the animals, which is what made all of our fossils. But you know, there were two of every kind preserved on the ark that God brought to the ark. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's 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 amazing, uh, but you know, ultimately, the story of the Bible talks about you know God Himself taking on form of Jesus, you know, coming and being born as a as a baby and and growing up, and ultimately being a sacrifice for that sin of Adam and Eve and all of our sins all along, and the sins that we we commit, the sins we're going to commit in the future. You know, Jesus paid the price on the cross for all of that. Yeah, and so uh, all we have to do is believe that. Yeah. In the days of Noah, all they had to believe there was going to be a flood, and they just had to walk through that door of salvation they would have been saved mm. today we have jesus says i am the door you know i'm the door of salvation and, and god himself you know gives salvation for everybody everybody in the world has the opportunity for salvation you know if they turn to christ i, uh, I love it he is that door of salvation so just like in those days god provided an out yeah and today he provides an out for our eternal mm. souls you know we'll either spend over or if we if we disregard god and 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 we know we're going to spend eternity in hell and but he's offered that salvation. Those people that died in the flood, you know, they they could see the waters coming. Many of them probably lived to day one forty, day one fifty. And I, I can imagine how awful it must have been. It was just a little bit of land, you know, still preserved at the very end. And people trying to huddle around, trying to get on it, and the fighting and you know, animals trying to get up there. Everything everything must have been just chaos those last ten or so days before the water went over the top. And then, but the Bible didn't leave a lot of sediment behind. You know, that's one of the arguments the evolutionists have is that, well, there's no sediment up in Canada. There's no sediment in Brazil and these places, but there is. There's, there's what I call the bathtub ring. Right. There's a little bit of sediment up there. There's even sediment in places in Minnesota sitting on top of these, you know, so-called basement crust rocks. Yeah. The sediment's up by the Hudson Bay. There's a little bit of sediment. You know, how'd that get there if it didn't come over from the edges? It can't just drop in. Well, are, isn't, I mean, isn't that kind of a small, isn't that kind of a, a minutia kind of issue though? Because the sediment is, 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 uh, you know, multiple layers beneath our feet. I mean, isn't that flood sediment? Yeah, all of it. Yeah. Most, most, all of the sediment all the way down, at least to, you know, there's some places where I can't tell where there's what's called pre-Cambrian sedimentary rocks below yeah. the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, 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 yeah. In it. I mean, down, down to the bedrock, down to the pre-Cambrian, yeah, down to the pre-Cambrian area. Some of that could be early flood. Some of it could be the, between the creation and the flood, and there's some some rocks on keeping track of that as right. well. But you can tell pretty clearly when you get to the Cambrian, what we call that first sequence, the sock mega sequence, that first flooding the evolutionists talk about. That pretty much... You, that's when you first get, you know, fossils show up in great numbers. And every kind of fossil suddenly shows up. You know, the trilobites, the brachiobites, yeah. all these things, they just show up. Like, there's no precursors, <laughs> there's no ancestors, yeah. they just move. There they are. Guess what you'd expect in a flood? Yeah. I mean, you look at the, you look at the data without all this crazy evolutionary uh, dogma that's been going on for 100 years, teaching old earth, old earth, old earth, and local floods. You really do see there is compelling evidence for a global flood. Every yeah, time yeah, does yeah. The same thing at the yeah. same time. Yeah, I mean it, the evidence is there. It, it's clear, but no one has been able to do this. Right. Except at ICR, people give donations to to pay my salary, so I'm able to do this research. And yeah. It's just, well, I'm, I'm real thankful for that. 
And, uh, you know, I, I want to, this isn't on our talking points, but I wanted to bring this into the, into this uh, discussion a little bit because it, we were discussing how it sounds fantastical that there was a global flood. Um, we see a, a plethora of evidence for that just by looking at the rocks, just by looking at what we see in the ground when we're honest and we see, we should at least give weight to, to this idea of catastrophic plate tectonics and of a catastrophic mm-hmm. flood. Um, but, but for us, it's easy to say, okay, there's this supernatural element because we're Christians, we're believers, we follow Jesus, we believe that God created the world ex nihilo. We understand miracle uh, miracles and how God works supernaturally at points in history. We see much of the much of the incidents where He did this recorded in the Bible. I, I believe God still does miracles today. I'm I'm a walking miracle the way He saved me, um, but I, like this idea of the supernatural. I don't feel like it should be that much of a, a stumbling block to people, even if they're atheists, because because they they don't have answers for some of these things either. I mean, someone might be listening right now and saying, "Well, what was your what caused the seafloor to rise?" Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, God. I mean, I'm just going to say God built something into the creation when He initially made it, knowing ahead of time because he's omniscient he knew that mankind was going to sin it didn't catch him off guard so he built this mechanism into the world or he just did it of his own power he he created this flood that's not so much of an issue to me as it is what do the rocks actually say well the rocks say the evidence says the earth was flooded by water scientists across the board agree even in the secular community they just do not want to say that it could have happened catastrophically. They just don't want to say that. And so that's where now I'm saying where, what's their mechanism? I, what's their mechanism for a tranquil flood? They don't have it. What's their mechanism for an ice age? Because we, that used to be a little bit of a, of a, of a sticking point for me, the ice age. The, the catastrophic plate tectonics and the flood Correct me if I'm wrong. This gives an explanation for the ice age that we see, right? Correct. Correct. It, it, that's, that's another great lead into that. I mean, and not only does the catastrophic plate tectonics model, you know, start, like you said, I, I'm not sure exactly how it all began. There must have been a miracle involved when God broke open the fountains of the great deep. But to me, that's what began the plates. Whether God set up the earth, of course, knowing this was going to happen. Uh, but he cracked open all these plates all over, and then those plates started to move. And so but that, the initial movement and stuff might have been the miraculous part, and then he just kind of let the earth run its course through the year of the flood once he got it going. But I, definitely there was a miracle involved in the flood. You don't just get a flood. People are just trying to say, well, it was an asteroid hit and cracked the thing. You don't need all that. There's no evidence of that in the Bible. There's no talk about that. You know, God could have just said, today's the day. And he cracked it open, and it's, you know, there on the ark, everything was all set. And so then it progressed along. And again, why did he take 150 days to, to kill all you know, air-breathing land animals and all the humans? You know, that that's God's choice. He, he could have done whatever he wanted. Uh, but to me, the, the this process also set up, and God had a plan yeah. all along. You know, yeah. did he bury marine algae and all these layers really, really rapidly so that you could preserve the carrageens to make oil for our world today, knowing that we need these energy resources, and he buried all this coal and all the plants, all the stuff we didn't really start using until the last two centuries. And yeah. So I, I think God had a plan all along, but he also had a plan for the Ice Age, because the Ice Age was very, very important, 
because you had to get the animals back from one location in the Middle East to all the continents. How do you do that? Well, God had a plan, and the timing was, was perfect once again. He brought in an ice age. The ice age lowered sea level by putting all this water into ice sheets across North America and Asia and Europe. And by building up so much ice a mile thick or more, you lowered sea level three, 400 feet, and that opened up these land bridges all over. But what set up the ice age? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ice age was set up by the heating of the water, by then making that whole new seafloor, put all that heat in. It was all made out of lava. So 60-mile-thick lava formed under the oceans. And animals were still living in the water. I was kind of going like the rug underneath their feet. And that heated the water considerably, maybe some people estimated 20 degrees Celsius hotter than they are today. You know, most of the ocean today is pretty close to zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But you, the water would have been much warmer, which causes more evaporation. So for hundreds of years until the oceans cooled down, because ocean water takes a long time to cool and heat up, once it heated up and took a lot of the energy in, of course, lots of rain was coming down. Lots of snow was coming down in the north because the volcanoes were also erupting all over the earth. So all this subduction process of these plates going into the earth caused lots of volcanic explosions that are very catastrophic, like Mount St. Helens, Mount yeah. Pinatubo, that erupts and puts ash into the sky. And if they're big enough eruptions like Mount Pinatubo did, it'll cool the earth for a couple of years. Just enough sunlight. So if you have hundreds of these volcanoes going okay. off, making all the islands around the Pacific, the Aleutians, the Caribbean islands, all these volcanoes popping up all over the world from subduction, you're going to get these very catastrophic eruptions, which is going to cool the earth. So the northern latitudes are going to be extremely cold. And the you know, southernmost, most of the land in the north is in the north, so you build up these big ice sheets. All that rain was coming down as snow. So snow upon snow upon snow. So within a hundred or so, 200 years at the most, we think you could have had a full-blown ice age going on. Mm. So, so, so when we look at... About the time of, of, you know, the Tower of Babel, you're having the ice age really, really going strong north of where people were living, but you had a very wet climate, even across Egypt, a wet climate across the Middle East, you know, as a land, even at the time of Moses, you know, over a thousand years later, you still had a well-watered land in the Middle East. It was completely different than what we see today. Yeah. Egypt, they didn't start in a, a desert that was rainy, rainy, rainy. Probably a climate like we see here in the middle part of the United States in, in Pittsburgh area or even in Texas. A much wetter climate because the oceans were still evaporating quicker because they were still warm. Yeah. And they finally did cool down, of course, then all that rain and, and ultimately the snow yeah. stopped. And, 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 and so the, the volcanoes stop and then it stops cooling the earth and then the earth starts to equilibrate to where we are today in like 500 year cycles. Okay. All the ice melts, and then you've kind of sealed off all these different continents over yeah. here. So, I mean, the bottom line is you see evidence of an ice age. I mean, I, re- I remember mm-hmm. this again from science class in high school, going mm-hmm. to public high school and everything like that, and getting that whole worldview. You see it. There's always, like, Neanderthals pictured, you know, mm-hmm. running around with spears and things mm-hmm. like that. But, like, <laughs> but you see an ice age. You see mm-hmm. evidence of a flood. A mm-hmm. catastrophic flood gives a mechanism mm-hmm. for an ice age. You know, evolutionists, right. people who believe in deep time, they've got they've got like all these kind of goofy beliefs in multiple ice ages, and they come to these conclusions. My understanding is because they right. they do drill cores into like the ocean floor, and and then they come up just with oh oh look there must have been there's some like you know little wiggles in in some of the you know spaces that they pull out of these cores, and they go oh there was an ice age eight hundred thousand years ago, and right. I, 
I mean, it, it, you know, that just sounds so goofy to me. I don't, like, I think if you believe in deep time, it seems like you don't have a mechanism for a tranquil flood, for one flood, let alone six. You, right. you, you also don't have a mechanism for a single ice age, let alone however many, whatever their count is now, however many ice ages they say there have been. In world well, history. there's supposed to be about five major ones, but you know there and a bunch of little smaller ones in the last couple million okay. years, as they say. Uh, and again, uh, it's based on these ice cores and the things that they do. But my colleague, Dr. Jake Hebert here at ICR, has done a lot of work on that, and he shows that their numbers are all off a little bit. So when you go back and replot them, they're not really lines up the way they're supposed to. <laughs> it's all supposed to do with you know the Earth's precession and wobbling yeah. and all these different things that go around. And these are all like thousand year cycles. Okay. So there should be there should be ice ages every couple million years. Right. Year right. Time, but yet there's only supposedly about five major episodes of ice ages, which yeah. most of the evidence for the earlier four is very suspect and can be explained by debris flows and things yeah, like that, would, making yeah. scratches and rocks. Uh, so there's really no evidence for one ice age. That's the most recent one, which we see. And even that wasn't recognized until the 19th century. If there even was an ice wow. age. Huh. But again, again, the, the catastrophic global flood model really does explain the, the reason for the one ice age. Yeah. And God had a reason for that because he had to make land bridges for the animals to get back to North America and to South America from the area around Turkey where the ark landed. Yeah. And without that, you know, the animals would come over to North America and they'd just be, you know, birds and things that could fly over. A few things that could have floated over, maybe some small lizards and things like that. There'd be no deer and bison. Uh, there'd be no mammoths, even during the Ice Age, over here in North America, which we see their bones. Uh, so we see lots of large animals got here somehow. Yeah. And I believe that's they got here because the land bridges that were there temporarily, and then as the ice finally melted and the Earth's, you know, things started to equilibrate, the volcanoes stopped erupting so much, we still see them today, one or two, every so often, uh, but not like they were. And the ocean cooled off, you know, that heat pump pushing all that water into the atmosphere. Uh, stops. We started getting big deserts at 30 degrees north and south latitude and that sort of thing with crust. How do you explain the ice cores? Uh, I heard Bill Nye arguing with Ken Ham in the uh, in the in the Ark Encounter one day about ice cores, ice cores. You know, yeah. you know Ken, well, these ice cores show 800,000 years. Like, uh, yeah. explain. Well, <laughs> explain I, 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 my colleague uh, Jake Hebert did a lot of research on this. Uh, and he shows how they count them, and they count them basically optically. They don't actually physically count these layers. Okay. And sometimes when they're missing layers, they'll go back and count them again. But, you know, you're building all these ice cores, and really what they're looking at is just it's almost like tree rings. Everybody knows you can make more than one tree ring a year. Yeah. You can make more than one ice, you know, line a year, even if they're real. Even if you, physically you can count the early ones. Uh, to date, you know, those are really just a different storm. It's just each time there's a storm, you get a layer. And so multiple storms, you're going to get multiple layers. You can easily get, you know, more than 10 layers a year. Yeah. And so to count these and say these solutions do because it gives them the kind of the answers they want. And if they don't get it right, they'll go back and recount them again and go, oh, suddenly there's, you know, thousands more yeah. to, fit, to fit their models. And so they go around using sediment cores and ice cores and comparing the two and trying to make them match. And they, and they kind of force it to match, but they – you know, as long as it fits the deep time <laughs> timeline, order, right, right. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. I, yeah, like when I you look know, they at hide everything behind deep time. Everything yeah, yeah. Deep time. I know that there was a. Um, I, I, for me, the bottom line is that there's so much other overwhelming evidence of of the mm-hmm. Earth being young. We've discussed much of it on this mm-hmm. this show already. Uh, which one oh, more yeah. thing I'd I'd like to ask you about in a second is is maybe your explanation of. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, not only carbon 14 dating, but mm-hmm. also and how maybe that has been interpreted wrongly, but also uh, potassium argon dating, which is used to date the age of rocks. Mm-hmm. Often these, yeah. these things conflict, conflict with one another, but there's so much other evidence in these other areas that we've talked about in terms of geology to say that the earth is young, that I'm looking at these ice cores and I'm going, they're just younger than every, than they're not 800. There's not 800 layers there of year, 800,000 layers. There just isn't. I know that um, they found a, I think it was a world war two plane with like 250 feet of ice on top of it or something like that, you know, that had crashed there just less than a century ago. Yes. Um, ice can build up fast. Yeah. I, so it, can but you explain? You gotta get pata- away from thinking these are annual layers. That's the problem. Yeah. They're not annual layers. They're just storms, yeah, individual okay. storms that took place. And so even if they could count 800,000 layers, that doesn't mean anything close to 800,000 years. I don't believe there's 800,000 layers anyway. Yeah. Uh, they have to kind of, they have to use it like a digital imaging thing, and they, you know, it's, it's very difficult to. Yeah. It gets a little, a little bit suspect when yeah. you get down deep vice course. They went to the paint the paint store and they looked at the spectrum next to it, the spectrum mm-hmm. of paint, and they went, "Oh, there's eight hundred thousand different uh, colors. So mm-hmm. that's how many different." Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain potassium argon dating? Uh, I, this was an important thing I did want to bring up on the show today because okay. I wanted you, I wanted to hear this from a geologist, from from somebody somebody who studies this. Okay. Why is this used in conventional science to say that the Earth is millions of years old? These rocks are millions mm-hmm. of years old. Um, how does that conflict with the fact that they mm-hmm. find they find soft tissue in dinosaur right. bones that are in rocks that exactly. are supposedly mm-hmm. you know exactly. how, how is, how is like this flawed as a system? Papers published on that now where they found they discovered original proteins and cells in flexible blood vessels and stuff that go back in rocks supposedly. Some of these worm proteins are supposed to be 500 million years old. And, of course, these things can't survive even 1 million years. But the potassium argon dating has been a technique that they just push on geology students as fact. Even when they explain it, they, they don't really talk about the assumptions built into. All of these have assumptions. In theory, these would work wonderfully if you could meet these assumptions. And, but they don't talk about the assumptions too often. Uh, but the biggest problem is you have, like, four unknowns, and you have two equations. So if you're a mathematician, you know if you have four unknowns, you got to have four equations. Well, so they just assume two things, and then they can solve it. And it sounds good. looks scientific. Oh, here's our answer. And many times they don't get the answer they want. They'll get answers that are all out of whack, and they'll say, well, that was bad data. That's a bad – and so many times they don't get consistent results, even in the same rocks from the same area. <laughs> and my biggest problem with the potassium argon dating – and shows the lack of accuracy of these things. I mean, it might be precise because you're yeah. assuming two things to begin with. You know, you assume you can, the rocks have never changed. There's no in or out of the system, which is, which is again, I hate to use this word again, it's, it's utter folly. Because as a groundwater geologist, I studied groundwater geology for my PhD, you realize there's groundwater everywhere. Groundwater is flowing through everything. And even our dinosaur bones, some of them on my yeah. shelf behind me, are radioactive because they're filled with uranium. Because uranium wow. is very soluble in water. So a lot of these elements are going in and out of the system all the time, and yet they deny that and say, nope, we can close this off. There's nothing happened to this stuff for hundreds of millions of years or sometimes even billions of years. And that is just crazy talk. Yeah. You can't say that, but people just think, oh, no, it works because it works for everybody else. All the time just agree. Like, that's not true. You just you kind of make up the numbers you want. And then if your numbers don't fit, they say, well, your data is bad or this is bad. And I see I did a lot of work on this uh, about 20 years ago. 
15 years ago, 20 years ago, called the Rate Project. And they took a bunch of samples from all over the different locations, sent them out to labs, got all sorts of results that didn't fit. Uh, the same techniques, you know, different techniques on the same rocks showed completely different numbers off by millions of years or even billion years in some cases. So there are claims that these things are, you know, validated by other techniques are, are untrue. There's no way to verify these dates. You just, they just say they're old because they want them to be. Uh, the, the biggest problem is when they've tested these, and I have some of this in my book, potassium argon particularly, they tested, uh, these are secular evolutionary publications starting in the 1960s, even through uh, the work that Steve Austin did for ICR back in the 80s uh, when he took samples from Mount St. Helens. They just erupted 10 years earlier, and he took a, sent it off, and he got numbers between 200,000 years old and 2.3 million years old for a rock that formed 10 years earlier. And so you go back to these papers published by these secular geologists, evolutionary geologists in the 60s, they do potassium argon dates on volcanoes in Sicily and volcanoes in Hawaii. Every one of those dates, to my knowledge, almost every one, maybe one got lucky, but almost every date was way off. Huh. Instead of 1,000 years old, they got millions. Instead of you know, 100 years old, they got millions. And so every time they test these, almost every time, you get dates that are completely out of whack, several orders, you know, orders of magnitude off. And just millions of years versus thousands or, or less than thousands. Why would you believe a technique that's wrong almost every time? Yeah, and That's like building a bridge, and it keeps collapsing, and it keeps saying, oh, go drive over it, it's fine. That would never fly in the real world. But they get away with it because who can tell them they're wrong? Yeah. I think so some of it comes— you're wrong, they want the old earth, they get the numbers they want, and they just keep building this, you know, almost like a— they're, they're they're building a pyramid. Emperor's new clothes the, the, story. Yeah, they are. You know, who's going to say? Who's going to say this is all nonsense? You yeah. know, we are. But then they say, "Well, you guys are crazy creationists. You guys don't yeah. follow the data." No, I, I think their system the sounds where crazy. They test it, over and over and over, they get the wrong num numbers. Yeah. So well, they're they're building the a they're building you know they're building a modern day pyramid. Mm -hmm. They're building a yeah. modern day religion. They've done that. Mm -hmm. They've successfully done that. They don't see it. They don't want to see mm -hmm. it. But like, uh, you know, we know that that's that's at the core of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I I think that I I just want more people to see this. You know, that that's mm -hmm. my heart. Is I just I want more people to see. Look, just look, that's, just look at the rocks. Just look at this stuff and well, I see. You. Let me come on the, the show and, and plug in my book a little bit. My it's goodness, not, it's not to make money. I mean, I, we do need oh, donations is, at ICR. I, I don't make enough money for this to be about money. <laughs> right. No, it, it, it's about getting the word out there that there is yeah. compelling evidence yeah. for a recent global flood. Everything yeah. we're finding, that soft tissue in the dinosaur bone, yeah. the deep subducted slab deep in the earth, all these things are pointing to things that happened thousands of years ago, mm. not millions. Yeah. And layers of the rocks, you know, like my... Just like bricks, you don't see evidence of erosion between the layers in Grand Canyon. You yeah. see flat layers and flat layers. Even though it's supposed to be 160 million years of time between the Mua of limestone down there in the Grand Canyon and the red wall above it, it's flat. It's flat, look. right, right. You know, the Grand Canyon itself is supposed to be 6 million years old, according to the evolutionists. So, yeah, 160 million years, shouldn't you have a lot of Grand Canyons throughout all these rock layers? Yeah. Again, we talked about earlier, the, the layers are still, for the most part, flat across all these continents. All these oil wells that I'm looking at, you can connect the same sandstone layers and same limestone layers from Pennsylvania all the way down to Grand Canyon. Yeah. You know, yeah. how does that happen? 
without a global flood spreading these rock layers out. Right, right. In these blankets, as they call them. So there's there's a plethora of evidence, and, and just part of that is covered in my book. Yeah, and, uh, I, I was uh, trying to get out. I was so I was arguing with a guy online one time, and he was you know <laughs> telling me how the Earth is old and all this stuff, and I he sent me an article which I read. Um, I skimmed through it. I didn't, I didn't read it deeply cause I felt like it was folly, but I, I, when I skimmed down to the bottom, I happened to see one of the footnotes and one of the footnotes was talking about carbon dating and it said how dinosaur bones, and, and I don't, I don't know what study this came from. I'm just talking about the footnote footnote in an evolutionary secular scientific, you know, article, journal article, whatever it was. And it said they commonly date to 40,000 years. Now, yeah. I'm not now I'm I'm not saying I don't believe that they're 40,000 years old. I'm right. saying 40,000 is a lot less than 60 million if it's a T-Rex, if mm-hmm. it's whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, from the you know, Cretaceous. I don't even like using their terminology because I feel like it's yeah, their not, terminology is flawed. Yeah, but all I'm I saying is if you're terms, yeah, if you're a if you're a person who Yeah, if if you're a person who is honestly looking at this issue, if you're an atheist, if you're a secular scientist, if you're somebody who you're a Christian, you, you want to believe in the Bible or you think you do believe in the Bible, maybe you're Catholic, maybe you're what you're whatever, you're uh, uh, kind of a progressive Christian and you kind of have adopted evolution. Like, I just really want to encourage you to look at these things because the evidence, even even in that, I felt like that little footnote I read was a big indictment against the scientific community because their own literature is saying, look, this is dating to 40,000 years, not 60 million. And they gave some ridiculous explanation. They just kind of, you know, explained it away. But what I'm saying is that's just another cap feather in the cap to say, look, the earth is young. Let's look at it. The earth was once flooded in a, in a global catastrophic flood. If you don't want to say like I did 6,000 years ago, fine, let's make the earth 40,000 years old instead of 6,000. That's still, That's still the reason people don't want to go there. The reason they don't want to go there is because I think it starts to make you look at this other book that talks about all this stuff. And now there's implications on our lives for this. You know, you did a great job of giving, uh, presenting the gospel earlier. (laughs) That's what it's all about. about. We want people to turn to Christ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did want to ask you one final thing, uh, mainly because I watched you on a recent podcast and uh, it was a Let's Talk Creation podcast. I wanted to see your response to this because I didn't get to see it in the show. You presented first, or at least they presented their interview with you first, and then they uh, did a follow-up interview. This whole thing, it it didn't, it wasn't uh, going against anything we've talked about here today in terms of the earth being young. What, What this whole thing that they did was, it was all where did the where do the flood rocks stop in the in the fossil record and you're of the mindset that they go all the way up basically to the ice age or to just before we see the the ice age and there's others in the in the young earth creation community who think they go the flood stopped a little bit before that i'm kind of Mm -hmm. on your side of things um but i but they brought something up in this in this uh in this episode I wanted to hear you respond to this. Specifically, it was that uh, they believe it's that the flood stopped closer to what's called the KPG boundary. Uh, what is that boundary? Why do you think the flood layers persist above it? And one of their arguments was that similar fossils are found below and above the Ice Age sediments in the same geographic regions. To me, that's not a problem. I can say God just sent those animals to the same places. 
But I wanted to hear you just kind of address that issue altogether. Similar fossils are found above and below Ice Age sediments. Am I explaining that correctly? And what would your response to that be? How would you explain that? Well, I think yeah, it even goes down below that, I think. I have to watch Marcus Marcus Rosma. He's, he's a good friend of mine. We just okay. agree to disagree on this in, in this matter. But uh, this is one of those things where, you know, creationists disagree. You know, where does the flood end? And, and it, up until I started doing my research 10 years ago at ICR, I was, you know, I thought these guys, well, they kind of seems reasonable enough to, to end the flood where they did, which is really the KEPG is, the, is what used to be called the KT, which is really the end of the Cretaceous. And that's really the kind of near the end of the fifth flooding or the fifth mega sequence, we call it, which I believe is the high point of the flood. So I believe the KEPG is the high point of the flood. I plot up all the data from all these different sequences, and I see that's the, you know, around the Cretaceous at KEPG. That's when you see the maximum flooding across the whole Earth. There's more sedimentary coverage on the Earth today. It's still there from that episode of the flood than anywhere else. Also, it's the thickest in terms of its value. So to me, that's, that's that, that screams high point of the flood. So I believe that's day 150 of the flood. They, these other guys say that's the end of the flood, which I believe too, until they start looking at a lot of things, a lot of the geology kind of to kind of and seeing those types of things that that was more likely the high point of the flood. Uh, one of the factors I, I in terms of the, the fossils crossing that line, to me, it's not a big deal because fossils are important, but they're not, the end all. And so most of the guys that are pushing the KBG are paleontologists, and they're not looking at the rocks as much. And, and to me, the rocks are much more compelling data because the rocks are there. The fossils are just what you found, what you haven't found, what's been eroded, what hasn't been eroded. But just because some of them cross these boundaries, uh, you're looking at statistical numbers of things, about 20 to 25%, I think Marcus Ross has found across, came back to North America, the areas that you find in certain rocks. But to me, there's about five major continents, and so you're going to get about a 20-25% return rate on some of these things. Others argue about the fossils in Australia, you know, why there are only fossils in Australia in, say, some of these rocks above the KPG, and then we see them there today. Why would they come back and that sort of thing? And, and you know, there's some of these questions about the dating of some of these as well. People point out questions like, are they really Miocene age or are these Ice Age fossils? And, and some of these need to be looked at. So it's not as readily clear but I believe there's a lot of compelling evidence, and so we've got about eight or nine things. I'll mention a couple of them. Geologically, that shows the KEPG was just the high point of the flood, I think day 150. Now, one of the problems is where's the canyons? If the water eroded away and, you, and drained off the land. Yep, same where problem. Are the canyons yep. at the KEPG level. Right, Instead, right. you see fossils showing up above that. And on above the KEPG, you see a lot of fossils that show up for the very first time, just what you'd expect and what we see throughout the whole flood. We see a lot of our mammals showing up. A lot of our flowering plants show up. Uh, whales show up. All these things show up suddenly above the KPG. And so some some of the uh, creation paleontologists have suggested that you know whales evolved rapidly from four-legged animals that got off the ark into whales, and which to me just it doesn't make any sense. You know you have to push the extreme because you pick the boundary too low. You, everything above it has to be, you know. Things had to rapidly evolve. Yeah, and they call yeah, yeah, right. Flood. And so even the evolutionists are going, some of these creationists are pushing and, evolution faster than we do. Yeah, and where where does the material, how does the material get there? I mean, you're still, yeah. th this was the weak point of his argument, mm -hmm. right? It was mm -hmm. just, 
how, and, and obviously he's a brother in the Lord and, and everything, but I think the weak oh, point is. of that he's argument. A great, he's a great guy. I yeah, yeah, I, I know. I, I've seen some of his other stuff too. And, you know, uh, I, I thank you too for doing what you're doing there. But like, it, how did all of the other material get there? And I think he recognized that as well. It's the same problem that you have with, I, I think that we already discussed in regard to a tranquil flood. You ha- How did all that extra material get there on top right. of the KPG, Right. Right. I mean, there's no other explanation I, I, for that. Yeah, I interpret that as the receding phase when the water right, right. up. A, a lot of it shifts offshore, and you yeah. get this, you know, this. There's big sands like what's called the Whopper Sand in the Gulf of Mexico, which yeah. is about 200 to 300 miles offshore. It's it's a thousand to almost 2,000 foot thick. There's no explanation for that other than the receding phase. And how would this happen after the flood was over? And that's another problem I, I run into uh, is the the amount of sediment in that above the KPG. Yeah. When I total up my numbers, because I put it in a computer database, I can total up the amount of sediment, and you find over almost 33% of the flood rocks are in that receding phase. So how do you explain 33% of the sediments above the KPG if the KPG is in the flood? Yeah. You've, got a, you've got a huge chunk of sediment that's deposited globally, and, and most of it's actually marine rocks right in the Middle East. I looked at the rocks around Turkey and south of Turkey where the Tower of Babel was built. Uh, in Syria and Iraq, it's all limestone. It's all marine rock all the way up to the surface, all the way up through the Miocene. So almost the entire rock level above the KPG is all marine rocks, and that even includes across Europe and other places. So when you really look at the rock data, it's, it to me it becomes more and more difficult to end the flood early at the KPG than above it. It's just it. Yeah. One last thing John Baumgartner always brings up, uh, he always says that the, the ocean floor, and, and this is true, the over one third of the ocean floor was still created. Seafloor, you know, runaway subduction was still going on during the entire uh, Cenozoic or Tejas or Tertiary, whatever to call it, the, you know, the rock layers above the KPG. And so, how do you, the, the mechanism of the flood was still going. There's no reason yeah. it was stopping or slowing down until right you, about you the very think, end. You would think, I mean, blasting. something. Something like that, like catastrophic plate tectonics, you you would think that's mm-hmm. going to have. It's not just going to stop. It's not just going right. to be over in a second. But it's going to, you know, yeah. by the same way that it started, it's going to stop. It's going to have to kind of wind down, so to speak, and and uh, you know, kind of create what we see today. But, and it just kind of stops all of a sudden because you've, when you made a whole new ocean floor, the mechanism for sea floor, you know, production was because you were subducting away the original cold, okay, high density material. Once you've made a whole new ocean crust, then everything just kind of stops because you no longer have like the fuel. You don't have that density yeah, contrast yeah, okay. to drive to drive it. So it just kind of steadily stops. So today we're moving this much per year because it's sixty mile thick plates that are still kind of slipping around a little bit. There's there's a little bit of movement still happening, uh, even you know four thousand some years after the flood. But it's not like it was. It just it was humming along, and all of a sudden it just kind of stopped. Just say hit your car brakes, you know, and everything's kind of still moving a little bit because everything's kind of jostling around. But it all once once you lose that cold original ocean crust that God created on the original Earth and made all new hot crust, that hot crust is like a you know, hot air balloon. It can't subduct, and so everything just kind of stopped. Yeah. Okay. Well, it makes and, a lot of sense. I mean, the mechanism. You know, they don't have a mechanism to stop the flood earlier. You know, it was still humming along. Again, yeah. one-third of the ocean, if not more, was still being created. The Himalayas hadn't even, the India hadn't even collided with Asia, and they're saying the flood was over. And to me, you know, just to argue mostly from a fossil standpoint is 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 
not as strong as looking at all the geology, uh, the limestone across the whole Middle East, all these salt layers being deposited. So you still had the flood, you know, evidence of marine rocks. To me, it makes more sense that's the receding phase. Plus all the new animals that show up suddenly. You know, you don't want, you don't have to argue there was rapid saltation or rapid evolution of, of animals to make whales. And, but you can get rid of all that if you move the flood boundary up higher. Right, right. There are some yeah. issues, and no matter what you look at, you know, there's still some footprints and things up in the upper layers, which I can't explain, you know, but we need to look at some of those individually and see are these really dated correctly. Uh, the uppermost layers are a little more difficult to try to correlate. Okay. Uh, I don't know if they've been done adequately. So there's there's some issues even to my interpretation, but I think the, the more the data, I mean, yeah. the more the geology globally, to me, you've got a third of the sediments deposited after the KPG. Yeah. You've got mostly marine sedimentation all around the Middle East, so you can't get off the ark. Basically, you can't build the Tower of Babel uh, until that receded away. You've still got limestone and salt being deposited, uh, and then the ocean crust, of course, was still humming along. You're still making the ocean crust throughout the most, pretty much the entire episodes that they're saying the flood was over. Yeah. And then the last thing is where are the canyons? You know, the canyons all form yep. at the top, yep. even Grand Canyon. Yeah. So it should be big canyons all over at the top of the Cretaceous. You should have big canyons carved out from the receding phase, and you don't see that until the end of the flood, you know, much higher in the rock record. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, I, I respect those guys, and you know, I believe what they were saying, but I think they need to, to take a, a critical look at what I'm finding and what other people are finding. You know, Mike Ord and John Bumgarner are all big advocates for a higher flood boundary as well for their own reasons, some of the same reasons, the coal seams and things like that, the biggest coal seams in the world all form after the KPG. It's not just the United States, it's it's globally, Europe and South America. I mean, how do you explain 200-foot thick coal seams that are 60 miles by 60 miles in, in dimensions, and they're stacked on top of each other without flood still being in effect? So I believe that's the receding phase. Animals that were living at the highest elevations and the plants, flowering plants and mostly mammals, Lions, tigers, and bears, and all those things all show up for the first time <laughs> above the KPG yeah. because that's where they were living. And that's where you would have found humans up there too, but I believe humans probably survived yeah. until right towards the very end. And if you're not buried fast and deep, you're not going to become a fossil. Mm-hmm. So you have to be buried pretty deep to be a well, fossil as well. I, I think that's a good place for a summation because, you know, the, yeah. the bottom line is even like with some of these things that we're talking about here. Um, we, we appreciate and we're thankful for all of our young earth creationist brothers and sisters. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, oh, yeah. we're in this together. And, and, uh, but, um, the, the bottom line is, I think the, the things that we all agree on are that the earth is young. The rocks show us that the rocks cry out. Mm-hmm. It's carved in stone. Right. A little plug for your mm-hmm. book there. And, uh, and, and the Bible is true. I think this stuff lends to this idea that the Bible is the world was once covered in a global flood. Um, you know, that's, that's another kind of takeaway, just, just really important for people to understand science. We're looking at the science. We're looking at the data. That's what you do. That's what you're passionate about. And those are the conclusions that you've come to that, that points us to Jesus. So I'm going to close this in a word of prayer real quick here, my friend. And uh, right. thank you again for coming on, Tim, Dr. Tim, Lord God, we just come before you right now. And I just want to thank you so much for, uh, for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your blessings. And we just want to pray that the eyes of the hearts of the scientific community would be opened. Lord of our culture would be opened. We want to pray that you would break up the fallow ground 
and help people to turn to God, help people to open the door to Jesus, help people to open the door to the Bible being true. Lord, we think that that's the big problem with a lot of this is that people just aren't open to the possibility that the Bible is true. They don't want to understand these implications of this if it is, Lord, that that you're going to have a, a judgment one day. You require something from mankind, Lord, to live righteously and to know your son. So God, we just want to pray that maybe through science, these doors could be opened. So we, we just come at this asking, Lord, for your help, asking that you bless, asking, God, that you would help open the doors to academic institutions, to secular schools, to so-called public schools, Lord, high schools. Lord, we pray that people would start to see your truth so that they could come to know you, Lord God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, my friend. Uh, Thank you so much again for joining us and make sure, sure if you you can get this on amazon i think right yes i believe so carved in stone or, really or go good. to icr.org or icr.org and, and definitely go to icr.org and uh, check out their resources they have many many other books by accomplished scientists as well but again dr tim clary thank you so much my friend god bless you thank and you thank you so much Patrick. yeah we will see you next time blessings to everyone over there at icr thank you